Welcome back to the book club. I am Michael Knowles, and today we will be talking about The Federalist. This is the guidebook for our constitution, our whole system of government. We have a great guest who cares a lot about our constitution and system of government to help us through it. But first, I've got to thank our friends over at Thinker. In this fast-paced world, it is very difficult to make reading a priority. Nobody has time to do it. So luckily at thinker.org, they summarize the key ideas from new and noteworthy nonfiction, giving you access to an entire library of great books in bite-sized form. So you can read or listen to hundreds of titles, including uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, an American classic, or Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. If you want to challenge your preconceptions, expand your horizons, and most importantly, sound smart at cocktail parties, go to thinker.org. That is T-H-I-N-K-R. No E, no time for that. Thinker.org to start a free trial and put your mind in motion. The subject today is the Federalist. We will delve the depths of our entire constitutional system. And the only man I know who can speak fast enough to get all of that into 25 minutes is Ben Shapiro. Hey. Thank you for coming on, sir. I would say good to see you, but obviously not true. So. <laughs> it would just be an absolute lie, but I had to have you come in. You are the only person I know. First of all, you love The Federalist. I do. You did The Federalist on your number one rated podcast. Uh, you did one Federalist paper each week. For, for like a year, year and a half, yeah. For a year and a mm-hmm. half. The Federalist papers, also known as The Federalist, are this guidebook that was written by... Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, little tiny bit, John Jay. A little John Jay. Like, he, he, was, he, he, really, yeah, he was the guy in your, in your third grade class who really didn't do anything but like <laughs> pasted something on the diagram and then was like, I was part of the group project. Mm-hmm. He, he shows up late. There were five the, of them. He shows John up Jay. late to the birthday party. He says, this gift is from all of us. <laughs> yeah, you know? Exactly. So it was written to defend the Constitution right after it was written by the guys who wrote it, by the guys who were pushing it. And it explains the whole constitutional system. Right. It does not explain the Bill of Rights, which is a pretty important thing. So everybody in the United States now thinks of the Bill of Rights when they think of the Constitution. They think, they think of the amendments, but forget that they are called amendments because they actually amend the Constitution. Right. The reality is that the, even, even the presence of the Bill of Rights is a pretty controversial thing. Most of the founders, or at least a lot of the founders, were not in favor of the Bill of Rights because they thought that it expressed that government could do anything that was not mentioned in the Bill of mm-hmm. Rights, right? Which is why there's an amendment that specifically says all rights not mentioned here are delegated to the states or to the people, meaning there are other rights that are not included in the Bill of Rights that we're not going to talk about here. The the American tendency to focus on the Bill of Rights obscures what was seen to be the chief protection for the American people, which was the structure of the American government, which is the actual constitution, the structural constitution. So the Federalist focuses solely on the structural constitution. And as I say, the the authors of the Federalist Papers were very much against a Bill of Rights because they were afraid people would focus in on freedom of speech or freedom of the press instead of focusing in on how were these branches supposed to interact to prevent exactly the kinds of usurpation of public power that we've seen over over the subsequent 200 years. Because you see in these 85 essays, which 77 of them appeared as op-eds in newspapers in New York. Could you imagine you get this caliber of op-ed in your (laughs) daily newspaper? And they appeared to just try to convince their fellow citizens and explain the system of checks and balances because they had this problem, which is, can human beings describe and define their own system of government? Can we really be free to govern ourselves? And if so, how are we going to do that knowing that men are not angels, men are avaricious, men want power, they're ambitious? What is the, the system that they're describing here? It's a system, I guess, of 
checks and balances. Right. There are a few things that the Federalist Paper is designed to solve. And, and to understand what it's trying to solve, you have to understand the history slightly before the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. Namely, you have to understand the Articles of Confederation, which is the first constitution of the United States, and was deemed extraordinarily weak. Basically, there, there are several problems with it. Number one, the executive branch basically didn't have the power to do anything. The federal government didn't have the power to gain tax revenue in any way, which meant that the United States didn't have the power to pay back its debts, which was a serious problem. It meant that the United States had to basically ask very nicely in order to gather military power, because otherwise everyone was afraid there'd be a standing army mm -hmm. at the top of the government and that that standing army could be used to cram down violations of rights, just like Great Britain had. And so the Articles of Confederation was written to give enormous amounts of power to the state and virtually none to the federal government. And this results in, most famously, the Shays' Rebellion, which is a situation where uh, there's a Massachusetts farmer and he doesn't basically doesn't want to pay his debts, and he starts essentially a debtor's revolt mm -hmm. against the state of Massachusetts, which is trying to give money, try to tax its own citizens to give money to the federal government to pay back war debt. And this necessitates the calling in of the armed forces. Uh, it becomes a, a really massive issue in the early republic. And so the original mandate for the Constitution of the United States was to get together to amend the Articles. It was not to replace the Articles. Right. Uh, and the founders get together and they quickly realize this is unworkable. There's no way to work from the current basis we have in the Articles of Confederation. We need to replace the entire structure with something that empowers the executive more, gives the legislature a little bit more power, but it also needs to make sure that, number one, the states feel protected, and number two, that people feel that their rights are protected by the amount of gridlock that's built into the system. So the way you see that today is people freak out whenever they see that the government is not doing what we want. Why won't the government do what we want? I'm so frustrated. They're Why won't the government do what I want? They're not doing anything. They're and, obstructionists. Right. And the entire system is built for gridlock. So the entire system is built in order to prevent the government from taking action that would be seen as precipitous, that mm. would violate rights. And the founders weren't content to just say, okay, here's a right, and now we're just going to pledge not to violate it. They didn't believe that anybody could pledge to the future that these rights would not be violated. Instead, they set up a system, and they basically said, no matter how hard you try to violate the system, it's going to be very difficult for you to violate the system itself because of all these checks and balances. So they are solving a couple of problems, as I say. They're, they're solving the problem of pure majoritarianism. They're afraid of the, the what they call the tyranny of the mob. The oh, idea pure, of pure the, democracy. Right. The idea that 51% could cram down on the other 49%, whatever it is they want. And you see a lot of people in today's America calling for exactly that, saying that we ought to get rid of the Electoral College, we ought to get rid of the Senate, we ought to get rid of, of any sort of quote-unquote anti-democratic means. 51% mm -hmm. should be able to cram down on 49%. You see people actually actively calling for that today. So all of these, all of the roots of the Constitution have, have precedent, they, they are precedent for, for today. The, they were also trying to solve the problem of federalism. So they're trying to balance the needs of the state with the needs of the federal government. Now, the way that you see this play out today is that there's an entire side of the political aisle that effectively wants to do away with states and see right. states as obstacles to the desires of the federal government. They don't, they're don't. they not interested in localism. One of the authors you'll see cited most often in the Federalist Papers is, is Baron de Montesquieu, mm -hmm. who specifically talks about the power of local government and why local government is better, why it matters more, why it's easier to get things done, why local government ought to have more power to do things in people's lives than a federal government far removed right. from you. And then finally, they're trying to solve the problem of, uh, of as I say, these, this sort of checks and balances question. What if an executive grows too, too powerful and too large and can cram down on the American people what they want? Well, then we have to check them with a legislative branch that can defund them. What if the legislative branch decides to get too ambitious? Well, then we have an ex executive branch that can veto. What if both of those decide to get too ambitious? Well, then we have a judiciary that's allowed to step in and say that this is unconstitutional. And then the other two branches are allowed to speak back to the judiciary, either by limiting its jurisdiction or in some cases ignoring it and then negotiating with it, as we right. actually saw in the earlier republic. So the idea is that these checks and balances to, to avoid tyranny of the majority, that protection of rights lies 
in the necessity for a supermajority. Basically, unless everybody agrees on a big thing, nothing big is getting done. Right. And this is seen as now the obstacle today, right? All of this is the bad stuff. This is why all the stuff that people complain about in American government, that's the feature, not the bug. Yeah, that's right? Right. The reason that you have rights is because the government was constructed such that interest was supposed to counteract interest, as Madison talks about in Federalist 51. The idea is that you're supposed to have all of these gears that grind to a halt unless everybody is pushing in the same direction, at which point you can have a constitutional amendment. But we're not supposed to be shifting wildly along political lines because the more you shift wildly, the more chance there is that the individual is going to be overrun by the collective will. And this is, you know, the word ambition that you use, and you mentioned Federalist 51, maybe the most important, certainly one of the most famous of the Federalist Papers. The key line here is, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interests of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. And this is where what's so interesting about The Federalist is, it's written by these different guys, some of whom kind of bitterly disagreed with each other, but it's all written under one pen name, Publius. Publius from the founder of the Roman Republic, whose name me literally means the friend of the people. And they, they all come together and write this way. And they're writing in part political philosophy, probably the great greatest political philosophy America's ever produced, but in part, it's very practical. In Federalist 51, he writes, Madison writes, quote, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government, which is to be administrated by, or administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. So in my view, this is the single most important expression of the American constitutional system ever written. And the reason is because, again, it does go to human nature. And you see, again, this battle over human nature being played out in elections like today's, where you have certain people who will suggest that those who govern us are of high mind and sound character. They're the best among <laughs> us, the bureaucrats in the executive branch, right? These are the people, <laughs> yeah. these experts, who are going to decide for us what is best, and they won't have to take into account what the people want. And why do we need any checks on those people? Because after all, they are the wisest and, and greatest among us. And so checks and balances are actually a problem. And this, and on the other hand, you have people who have suggested historically that human beings are degraded and terrible, and therefore they shouldn't be afforded any rights. You should have one person at the top of government, and that person should basically be cramming down rules on the rest. Now, they come up with the same sort of solution, mm -hmm. right? The people who run government are good means the government has no limits. The people at the bottom are bad, and therefore you need one person who's very powerful to make sure they all stay in line right. is the same sort of thing, just from a different angle. The, what, what the founders were attempting to do was avoid the Hobbesian Leviathan, yeah. right, which is that, that second theory, which is basically that people would be killing each other in the streets if it were not for a powerful, overarching government that has the right to figure out what sort of rights you ought to be entitled to. And on the other hand, the sort of Marxist utopianism that says that if you delegate all power to the government, that the government can cure all, all problems, mm -hmm. everything will be good because human beings are naturally good if made if made good by a, by a better social system imposed from above. And that's such a great point because you see in Federalist, I think it's Fed 6, yeah, Fed 6 by Hamilton. He says, is it not time to awake from the deceitful dream of a golden age? Uh, this idea that we're just, everything's going to be tickety-boo to quote our friend Andrew Clavin. You know, the view of human nature here is the key because they don't think that men are totally depraved. They don't think that men are angels. In, in Fed 56, Madison writes... As there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust, so there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. And here's the key. Republican government, the government that the Constitution sets up, presupposes the existence of these qualities 
something to be confident about, something respectful, in a higher degree than any other form. Men can't be totally depraved or else we can't govern ourselves. Now, this is the part that people, you know, sometimes in the libertarian side, tend to forget about, which is that you do need a virtuous society in order to uphold the republic. Yeah. So this is something that the founders recognized. They, they, they believed that virtue was to be imposed by social institutions, rich social institutions that existed outside of government. Again, this provides a sharp contrast to a lot of the talk that happens today. Or, For example, in 2012 at the Democratic National Convention, there was a video that was flashed up on the billboard and it said, government is the only thing we all share. Yeah. Right? And that, that's, that's something that the founders- belong to. Right, right belong yeah. to. And that, that's, that's something that the founders would have rejected wholeheartedly. They believed right. that what we all shared was family, it was church, were social institutions in which we all engaged. Yeah. And then when we had to come together in order to take care of a common problem, then we came together in the form of government. But the idea that government was going to be the great unifying glue in American life was something that was completely foreign to the founders and would have been foreign to them because, again, the states had just broken away from this right. other government. Everyone was British, right? I mean, these were all British subjects until five minutes ago. And now they have formed their own country. Everyone's chief allegiance, I mean, they talk about this in the Federalist Papers at length. The assumption was that everyone's chief allegiance would be to their home state before it was to the federal government. The hope of the founders was that eventually people would shift that allegiance gradually toward a federal government overarchingly. Yeah. But in terms of who you were going to deal with from the government on a day-to-day -day basis, it was supposed to be the local and the state government. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea that what we would share mostly was an allegiance to the federal government. The federal government is where we're going to put all of our concerns. That was considered deeply dangerous by the founders. It's yeah. deeply dangerous today when people suggest that the federal government is where we all share things. The truth is most Americans don't believe that, which is why it's so inherently dangerous to vest such inordinate power in a federal government very far away from you and governing over these disparate populations that largely disagree with one another. The only way we can have tolerance and diversity in a society is if we leave each other alone. Yeah. Well, this structure was meant to allow that to happen. Now, for, mostly for good, in some ways for bad, right? I mean, when it came to slavery, that was for bad because the, the founders made the calculation that it was more important to have a union than it was to get rid of slavery. By the way, that calculation historically ends up being justified because the fact is that if the founders had said, no, we're not going to get rid of, we are going to get rid of slavery in the Constitution, the entire South breaks away. Yeah. And not only and does that become a separate country, slavery is still legal there right. for decades after the Civil War, right? right? There's no cause for the Civil War because they're actually two separate countries occupying the same continent, presumably in a state of constant tension and possible war. Right. So the, the, Obviously, tolerance and tolerance for, for other points of view requires you to back off of things that you may not like. And then the, in the Constitution, you know, this is more of a general conversation about the Constitution. The Constitution was supposed to put slavery on a gradual, not so gradual, road to extinction. I mean, mm -hmm. this is very explicit from the words of the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. But the, the bottom line in the Federalist Papers is that what it sees is that human beings are greedy and ambitious, but also capable of great good, which is why they don't need government cramming down some vision of the good on top of them. And the only way, again, we're gonna be able to live in a diverse society is with a very light hand at the very top of government, but heavy enough so that if need be, then there can be a popular mobilization to get a thing done, but it has to be so important that pretty much everybody agrees it needs to get it's, done. This is a very American idea. This is what, what I mean by that, obviously it's by definition an American idea because it comes from you know the description of our founding, uh, founding of the country. It's not totally clean. It's not totally abstract philosophy. It's not just one government. It's this very messy system of different governments kind of conflicting with one another. There's a line in Fed 55. It's one of my favorite lines in, in the whole Federalist. Uh, this is by Madison. He says, nothing can be more fallacious than to found our political calculations on arithmetical principles. It's this sort of acknowledgement that while this is absolutely high-minded philosophy, it's also down in the dirty politics and real practical wisdom coming from the guys who have helped to found the country, who have written the constitution, who have dealt in a really personal way with these local politicians and the people. 
how much of the Federalist is philosophy and how much of it is just a, a user's manual for the Constitution? I would say that it's about 30% philosophy and 70% user's manual, but the 30% philosophy is the important part. Yeah. But what I mean by that is that <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it's really like asking what's more important to the building, the foundations of the building or the, or the stories built on top of it, right? The, right. The, the philosophy is the foundation of the building, and then the entire superstructure is built on top of those foundations. So if you shift the foundations, yeah. you destroy the superstructure. And that's basically what has happened in terms of the shift in American government since the beginning of the 20th century. So founding philosophy is explicitly rejected by the progressives at the beginning of the 20th century, yeah. right? The, the yeah. Federalist is basically as anachronistic, a product of time. It was it was a mis it was a miscalibration of what human beings were. Yeah. It was it was it was portrayed as an eternal view of what human nature was, but it was really just a reflection of what human nature was at the time. Yeah. And now we've got better people at the beginning of the 20th century, and that means that we can have a government unbounded. Mm -hmm. In the words, words of Woodrow Wilson, the Declaration of Independence is sort of hackneyed. It's done. We don't need it anymore. Yeah. The, the only thing the founders really wanted was for us to know that we have these rights, and then it was up to us to figure out how to guarantee those rights. That's not true at all. Again, that is, that is completely misreading the Constitution and the Federalist Papers. It's reading the structural Constitution out of the Constitution, and that is yeah. the important part. And, and that's what we've seen, right? We've seen the executive branch, which was supposed to be executive, right? It was supposed to execute. It was not supposed to be a legislative branch. Right, it's become, the energetic branch of the government as the uh, writers of the federal Because it was say. not supposed to override anything the other two branches were doing, right? It was supposed to compete with the other branches, yeah. but it could always be defunded by the legislature. The notion of an executive branch that has within it a legislative branch, which is the entire bureaucratic system. That's the right? current system we have. Right, that is the current system. Most lawmaking does not happen in Congress. Most lawmaking happens at the bureaucratic level where the legislature delegates a very broad law to these regulatory agencies and then just says, okay, fill this in. So they'll, mm -hmm. they'll write the clear Clean Air Act, and it'll say, make the air clean, and they'll just kick it over to the executive branch, and you have a bunch of regulators over there saying, okay, what that means is that you can only have this many parts per million of a particular <laughs> particulate in the, in, in the air. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that that's not answerable to the people, because those bureaucrats are not answerable to the people. Right, so the right. executive branch has become a legislative branch. The legislative branch increasingly is becoming a vestigial organ. It doesn't matter who the president is. Okay, This has yeah. been happening under Bush, Obama, it's, it's happening under Trump, too. The growth of the legislative the, of the executive branch at the expense of the legislative branch. And that's not just the fault of the executive. That's the fault of, of the legislature. One of the things that's, that's really fascinating about the Federalist Papers is if you really want to get a great picture of it, read the Federalist Papers and then also read what are called the Anti-Federalist Papers. Because remember, this is a robust debate, right? As, as Publius is writing, right? These three, these three great Americans are writing the defense of the Constitution. There are a bunch of other great Americans, including Robert Yates, who is one of the members of the Constitutional Convention, who is writing, they're, they're writing a, a series of papers against this, right? So there's and, a lot of point-counterpoint. It was actually right the Anti-Federalists who came first, right? They were writing these articles. And then uh, Publius, who's really Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, they write the Federalist Papers as a response to all these op-eds that are coming out against the Constitution in the first place. And what's fascinating to read about the Anti-Federalist Papers, so you, when you read the Federalist Papers and you understand that they are attempting to react to a lack of government ability to even have a system. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're looking at the possibility of dissolution of the country. Yeah. And so you need a slightly more powerful government while promising people it's not going to run roughshod. Right? And this is one of the things you see in some of the in some of the Federalist Papers, like Federalist 78, where they're talking about judicial power. Yeah. And Hamilton is explicitly saying, listen, as soon as the judiciary begins to act as a super legislature, you know, basically cramming down law in the name of the Constitution. It loses its reason for being. Right. We don't expect this will ever happen. The judiciary would... would they would be, never it, write the law. Right, it just becomes a super no legislature. Way. We'd have to dissolve it. Right, they would never do any of this. And Robert Yates, in the Anti-Federalist, writing, no, that's exactly what's going to happen, right? The judiciary is going to become a super legislature. Yeah. It's going to write its own law, which is exactly which what has does. happened. Yeah. And so for the first... But what's funny is that 
for the first 150 years of American experience, basically, the Federalist Papers are right. And then the progressive movement happens and rejects mm. the Federalist Papers. And then everything that the anti-Federalists say starts to look a lot more you right. You know, it's so funny because you read the what you just cited, Fed 78, which is about the judiciary and judicial review. And it's the one that starts to ring the most untrue because you realize now that the courts actually are writing our laws for us, even though it's illegitimate. But the I think maybe the most depressing one to read, especially in the 2020 presidential election, is uh, Fed 11 by Hamilton. And he's referring to how look, we're never going to lose ourselves to our passions under this system. A rage for paper money. Well, I guess we already lost that one. A rage for an abolition of debts, for an equal division of property, or for any other improper or wicked project will be less apt to pervade the whole body of the union than a particular member of it. And when I look at the 2020 candidates running on the left, they are explicitly calling for an abolition of debts and they were calling for more or less an equal division of property. So all these years later, this, this was written in 1787, they got, they got a lot of things right. They predicted a lot of things, probably the most important work of philosophy ever to come out of America. How do they hold up? They hold up as a critique of the power of government they hold up in terms of the durability of the institutions. I mean, the, the fact that we have any rights at all in a, in a time when <laughs> most Americans seem at least queasy about the exercise of, of a lot of our rights, ranging from the First Amendment to the Second Amendment, from freedom of religion to the right to bear arms, they, they hold up in the sense that they have provided a bulwark against schemes to, to rob us of our rights. The only way in which they don't hold up is in the, is in the prediction that they will hold up, meaning <laughs> that the, the prediction is that we will create the system of government, and that in and of itself will will hem in everybody. But the problem is that at a certain point, the calculus began to change. And some of that was inevitable, right? Yeah. After the Civil War, the growth of the federal government at the expense of the states was inevitable and in, in many senses good, right? I mean, one yeah. of the great tragedies of American history is that the Reconstructionist Republicans weren't able to dominate for longer than they were able to dominate the, the radical Republicans in the aftermath of yeah. the Civil War. Um, but with that said, the, the attempt that they draw to, to draw a balance is not only is not only good, it is necessary in a time when politicians promise that we don't have to draw any balance. They yeah. suggest that we all ought to be unified in pursuit of their grand vision, when in fact, no one has ever been unified in pursuit of this grand vision. The grand vision was the preservation of individual rights. What the real key to the Federalist Papers is, is understanding that Constitution and Declaration are of, un are of one piece. Really what the Federalist is, it's the philosophy of the Declaration manifest in the Constitution in the way that Abraham Lincoln spoke about it. The idea was the Declaration of Independence was about rights that pre-exist government. Right, God-given rights, individual rights that invest in, that adhere to you as an individual and are not able to be overcome by any communal interest and that those, the only reason for a government to exist is to protect those individual rights. And the Constitution is created specifically in order to protect those individual rights and allow government to protect the country more broadly from threats foreign and domestic. I mean, that's effectively what the Constitution is designed to do. When you get rid of the philosophy of individual rights, which has been the ongoing project of, unfortunately, the political left in this country since the beginning of the 20th century in favor of a more communal vision of what exactly we all ought to have. This is why you hear Bernie Sanders talk about the right to health care as opposed to the right to free speech. He only cares about one of those things, yeah. right? The, or the right to own property, which is completely secondary for him. That is a complete rejection of the founding philosophy, yep. which was the basis for the Constitution. So you get rid of the philosophy, and eventually the Constitution itself is going to be reshaped. That's been happening. But that just means that we ought to remind ourselves why the founders wrote what they wrote here, not just why this is the best system of government ever devised by man, but also why the philosophy that undergirded that system, that has its roots ranging all the way from Judeo-Christian history through Magna Carta and up through English history and, and John Locke, why, why that philosophy is correct. If we, if we really want the, the government that, that 
guarantees us our rights while being able to protect us from the violations of those rights, then we need to reacquaint ourselves with the philosophy that lies at the root of the Federalist Papers, not merely the institutional checks and balances that you can get from reading a 5,000-word document. And there's a key word that, that ties in everything that you've said, which is, it's actually noted in the introduction by Charles Kessler, which is responsibility. The, the Federalist, more than any philosophy document, gives us this word responsibility in a political sense, meaning that the government has to be responsive to us, responsive to what the people want, but it also has to get to the root of responsibility, which comes down to a sort of oath or a sacred vow or a promise. And that is the, that is what you can't change about the constitution. That is, that's the basis of the whole structure. And as you see responsibility go away generally from society, then I think the fidelity that we have to the constitution and everything that these guys lay out sort of goes away as well. I guess uh, I don't want to leave us on a downer note, but usually you're the one who kind of leaves on a pessimistic note, note. but there, there does seem to be some hope that at, at least in the broad, all these years later, the structures that, that these guys created have endured. No, well, no, no question. I mean, the system of American government is incredibly durable. It'll be more durable if we, again, reacquaint ourselves with the fact that we were never meant to be a simple majoritarian democracy. When people use democracy instead of republic, they are making yeah. a category error. Yeah. Uh, that that w- if we reacquaint ourselves with the fact, I mean, now is actually a perfect time to reacquaint people with the Federalist Papers. And you can tell your friends on the left this. You know, a lot of people on the left very, very upset that President Trump is president and yeah. that Mitch McConnell is the head of the Senate and all the rest. Now, here's a good idea. Would you care who the president of the United States was if he weren't bothering you so much? Yeah. I mean, I felt the same <laughs> right, way about right. Barack Obama, but wouldn't it be nice if we really didn't care who the president of the United States was? Because for the vast early part of American history, no one cared really who the president of the United States was, except in terms of the sort of like major decisions like war. Other than that, the president, bo- I mean, for, for the early part of American history, you could literally walk up to the White House, knock on the front door of the White House, and the president would answer the door. Yeah. This actually happened when Abraham Lincoln was president. Abraham Lincoln, right? I mean, this is late in American history. It's 80 years after the founding. And that used to happen because the idea was that Washington was not going to be that important in our lives. The important right. stuff that you did in your life was about your family, it was about your community. If you had things you needed the government to do that was on a local level where you tended to agree with the people who lived around you. So now that we look at our country and we're a very diverse country with a set of variant interests, then maybe the best answer is to go back to the sort of federalist structure that required right. a supermajority of support in order for us to get anything done at the national level as opposed to this, this people on the left talk about we polarize, we're falling apart, we're coming apart. And yet, what if we just had a government to cram down on everybody? And say, well, <laughs> yeah. if we're coming apart, then why exactly do you think the solution is to raise the stakes of that by suggesting that you're going to be able to cram down your vision of society on all of these disparate groups? Why not just say, okay, go your own way as long as you're violating nobody else's rights? That was the founding vision because things were pretty fractious in 1787, in many ways more fractious than they are now. And you know, if the president is really driving you crazy and you're pulling your hair out, maybe it's just a reminder that men are not angels, angels do not govern men, and we should listen to these guys about a lot of other things. We could go on forever, but of course, thankfully, you were able to fit in a whole lot of the Federalist Papers, even in this short time. We'll have to have you back to do the Anti-Federalist. That sounds good. thank you for being here. That is the book club. Please be sure to tune in next month. I'm Michael Knowles, and in the meantime, happy reading. Thank you so much for watching this episode of The Book Club on PragerU. PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we rely on donations from viewers like you to keep this content on the air. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today to help keep this content coming. Thank you very much.